0: Find your way, if you could, to Isaiah chapter 7. We are in this topic, this theme of Advent, Jesus is coming. If you're in Isaiah 7, if you have your scriptures with you, if not, they are on the screen for us. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17 of Isaiah 7. And I'll read it. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you, are, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The world will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This time of year, we see Christmas all around us. Every store you go into, every street you drive down, there's Christmas. There is Christmas lights, there are Christmas decorations, every store that you walk into has Christmas all around, you can't even go to buy a hammer at the hardware store without seeing Christmas just surrounding you. One of the first things that changes, and we were talking about this a little bit ago, one of the first things that changes in this time of year is actually the music. You start to hear Christmas music get played when you go into the grocery store, you go into Walmart, you go into Target but we don't really notice it, do we? It's just kind of there, just kind of background noise. It's something that's there, but it's just more of an afterthought than anything. And just like the music in the grocery store that for us is just an afterthought, when we get to topics like the virgin birth, the danger we run into is that it just becomes part of the tradition. It just becomes part of the, the normal thing that happens in this season. After all, we don't really use the word virgin except for one month out of the year. We don't, the 11 months out of the year, we don't really use the word much. We don't really think of conception and virgin birth much throughout the rest of the year. And the risk we run is that when the virgin birth just becomes background noise, we begin to think, does it matter? Is it really that important should we care as much as we think we should about the virgin birth? I mean, it's a good story. It's fun. Kids can have a pageant about it. We can have a nativity scene. It's not really that big of a deal because it's just an afterthought. It's just background noise. Besides the virgin birth, or really a virgin conception, it's just not natural. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with how we think the world should operate and how the world does operate. So we can better explain Christianity. We can more easily talk to people about the gospel without having to bring up things like the virgin birth, because after all, it's complicated. People don't really like it. And it's just this unique, strange thing that really we, do we really need to know it? Do we really need to care about it? That's the perspective we can have because it's just part of the tradition. My response to that this evening, and I'll put this out there at the start of things, is that without the virgin birth, we don't have the gospel. Without the virgin birth, there's no forgiveness of sins. And I want us to think about the virgin birth and those concepts of the virgin birth. Without it, we miss the gospel. We lose the gospel by answering three different questions. First, where did the virgin birth come from? Second, did it really happen? And then third, why does it matter? We're going to stay in Isaiah chapter 7 for a bit. Isaiah seven fourteen, we read it. It's very familiar, but there's a context to it. There is historical context we need to understand because in Isaiah's day, these words were said and these words were written 700 years before Jesus. So we're talking about something that happened seven centuries before Jesus came onto the scene. So there's something happening here for why these words were written. They weren't just put in here randomly. There's a reason for it. So if you look at verses one and two, Isaiah seven, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razim, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So what's going on here? Lots of names. Can't pronounce any of them. Lots of places. What exactly is going on? So try to summarize, and I put a map together. I didn't put this together. I borrowed a map from the internet to hopefully help explain some of this stuff. There are, the, the nation of Israel split between Judah in the south, you can see it's colored in green. Israel in the north, you see it colored in purple. It's split after the death of Solomon. You have the ten tribes, they stayed in the north, they kept the name Israel. Two tribes stayed in the south, they took on the name Judah. So we now, what once was one nation, is now split into two. These two nations one king, Ahaz, he's the king of Judah. Ahaz and the people of Judah are afraid because Pekah is the king of Israel. And Pekah has decided that he is going to make an alliance with the king of Syria. That's the reddish color that you see up there. Syria is a completely separate nation. They were going to align with each other. Think of it like a treaty. Think of it like some type of an agreement like you have our back, we have your back. So we're going to work together because you notice the big kind of greenish bluish color there Assyria that's the superpower of the day they are the largest nation greatest military they just ran and ran through everybody nobody messed with the Assyrians and so the king of Israel and the king of Syria said we're going to join together and partner together in order to prevent Assyria this giant superpower from taking over We we don't want them to come in and conquer us and destroy us, so we're going to align ourselves together. The problem they had, though, was that little bit of green down there, Judah. They were uncertain of where their allegiances were. They said, we don't know what Ahaz is going to do. Ahaz could align with us, or Ahaz could say, you know, I'm going to align with the Assyrians. And so now you see the problem that could develop if that happens. Now they're fighting the Assyrians in the north. They're fighting a, an alliance that the Assyrians have with Judah in the south. So they're fighting a war in two different places. And Israel and Syria said, we don't want that. So the kings get together. They said, this would, this would put a bad thing for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to form an alliance and we're actually going to destroy the nation of Judah. We're going to take over Judah because that's the only recourse we have. So Ahaz is now king of this small little country being threatened by two nations who are coming after him and said, we are going to just crush you. We'll get into specifically what they what they'd like to do to the nation of Judah as we get further along. So Ahaz is left with this decision. What do I do? What decision do I make? Do I try to resist them on my own? Do I go in a different direction? What do I do? And if you read through the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters is just him, Isaiah trying to help the king of Judah figure out the answer to that question. What do you do? Who do you trust? Do we go to Assyria and rely on them? Do we trust in God? What do we do in this situation? We see this still today. I mean, you, you look around at the world and there's all this politicking, there's these nations who are doing all this stuff to posture against one another. Russia invades the Ukraine. The Ukraine calls out for help from the United States and other Western nations. And people form alliances, wars happen, all these things happen. It still happens today. It's the same type of scenario, same type of setup. So Ahaz and Judah have this constant temptation to go ask Assyria to help. They want this big this big nation up here to come and just give them aid, to know that if we ever get attacked, somebody's got our back. And if Ahaz makes the wrong decision, ultimately it could mean his life and the life of all of his people. Pretty weighty stuff. This isn't easy stuff. This isn't an easy decision to make. And it's different for Ahaz to go call for help. We think of calling for help as pretty easy. You press three buttons, 911, and you get help comes right for you. Your house is on fire, 911, fire trucks come, they help you, they save you, they save your property. It wasn't like that then. Not only did you not have the convenience of just pushing a couple of buttons, but if you were to align yourself with another country and say, we're going to have this covenant together where we're going to have each other's back, what it meant was for a nation like Judah, a small country aligning themselves with a giant superpower, It meant Judah is subservient to Assyria now. And what that means is not just we're going to serve you. It means we're going to take all of your gods. We're going to worship all of your gods. We're going to start to, instead of worshiping the true God, we're going to worship all the Assyrian gods. We're going to pay you taxes. We are just going to let you do whatever you want so that Assyria, you protect us. That's the dilemma for Ahaz at this time. Do we covenant with this other nation, knowing it means we take on other gods, knowing it means we violate the covenant we have with our own God, or do we trust that God is going to do something for us? Let's go to verses 3 through 6, chapter 7. Isaiah meets Ahaz. It says, the Lord said to Ahaz, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherbashub, your son. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool, at the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Razin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So Isaiah goes and he meets Ahaz and they they discuss how this alliance of Syria and Israel plans to conquer Judah and and set up a puppet. They essentially want to set up a puppet king that will do what they want. So their their goal is not only to take over the country, but if, if we remember, Ahaz comes from a line of who? David. So in their threat to kill Ahaz, end that kingship, take over Judah, not only are they threatening the life of an individual person, but they're threatening to end the very covenant that God made with David. And and God's covenant with David was what? That there would be a king on the throne of David forever. So it's not simply a threat to his individual life. It's a threat to this covenant that was made with Ahaz's ancestors Hundreds of years before. In verse four, we see God's message to Isaiah. He says through Isaiah, he says, "Do not fear." He gives him an example. He says, "What is this alliance? It's like a burning log. It's nothing. If you ever had a fire at a campsite or in your backyard, or you've ever cooked with charcoal, you you get the picture here. Once you get that fire going, you put a log on it, and the wood, the charcoal burns up quickly. It just quickly turns to ashes." In just a few hours, that fire pit has produced tons of ashes. That's the imagery that God, through Isaiah, is giving to Ahaz. Don't fear these people because in a moment's notice, they're going to be dust. They're going to be nothing. Do not fear them. That's the message. And it's a helpful message, isn't it? It's a helpful message for us because we are fearful people. We're fearful of many things in our lives. There's so many what-ifs that just run through our mind each and every day of things to be afraid of. And yet God's message to Ahaz, God's message to us is do not fear. Those things are nothing. They're dust. Even the, the voices that we listen to throughout the day, they're meant to scare us. You know, We just went through political season. And if you listen to podcasts or you watch the news, listen to the radio, none of those things are going on to say, everything's fine. Tune in tomorrow because everything's going to be fine tomorrow too. Is that what they say? No, because that doesn't drive ratings. That doesn't help anything for them. What they're going to tell you, and we just went through election season, if the election goes a certain way, democracy ends. If the election goes a certain way, all your rights are going to be stripped away. The election goes a certain way. America, as you know it, will be finished. So send us your money so we can keep America going in the right direction. That's the message. Because why? It stokes fear in people. It stokes fear in people because a message of everything's okay doesn't get people to tune in. But ultimately, that's the message that God gives to fearful people. To those who are in fear but have trusted in God, he says, do not fear because I... What we'll get to, I am with you. Do not fear these things. They are like ash in the wind. They are nothing. The message God gives us is do not fear. And that's not to say that the things that we're experiencing, the things that we're afraid of, will instantaneously get better. It's not to say our circumstances will change. It's not to say that our circumstances won't get worse. But who should we fear? Should we fear Syria? Should we fear the Assyrians? Should we fear Israel? Should we fear a crisis in the world? Should we fear all the what ifs going on in our lives? And again, God's answer is, do not be afraid. Ahaz's life is under threat. The covenant of God, the covenant God made with David is under threat. And so Ahaz is wondering, who do I put my trust in? Ultimately, Who do I go to for assurance? Isaiah speaking for God says, they're nothing. Don't worry about them. And he gives us another word in verses seven through nine. Verse seven through nine say, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Razin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So to summarize this this prophetic, poetic language, God's telling these nations that these nations are no threat to Ahaz. They are no threat to Judah. That within decades, these countries won't even be around anymore. They'll just be destroyed. So, Ahaz, are you going to trust God to keep his promise, because that's what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise. Are you going to trust God to keep his promise that the line of David will not end? Or are you going to run to serve Assyria and their gods? Ahaz is in a position to choose between short-term relief and long-term promises. Because it'll feel really good to have this backup from Assyria. It'll feel really good in the short term, to have this giant nation knowing I can trust in them, I can rely on them. And in the immediate, it sounds great, but what it does is it gives up on the very promises that God has said are there for you. And God ultimately says it's a matter of faith. He says, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, Ahaz, you can't see what's gonna happen in this next decade, 60 years from now, but I do. So what you need to do is operate by faith, not by sight. Even though you can't see what's coming, I can see what's coming. So trust me. We've had, we all have these things that seek to just crush us, that seek to overwhelm us, but God's word to us is to trust him. It means to trust him with our grief. It means to trust him with our sadness. Trust him with our fears. Trust him with our worries. Trust him that his long-term promise to us far outweigh, far outlast any short-term relief from the difficulties we have today. Trust him that there is an eternal glory waiting for us. And that eternal glory waiting for us far outweighs whatever suffering we deal with today. That the sufferings of this present time pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us one day. That's the long-term promises of God. This brings us to verse 10. We've already read these verses, so we won't read them again. But the Lord says to Ahaz, ask a sign. Ask me anything. Ask me something and I will do it. Now, normally when we look at scripture and people are asking for a sign from God, it's it's usually seen as a negative thing, usually seen as some type of unbelief. You don't ask signs of God because in asking a sign of God, what you're saying to God is prove it. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. One of the best or worst examples, depending on your perspective, is Jesus hanging on the cross. The Pharisees, the religious leaders say to him, if you would just come down and show us, then we would believe. They're not actually looking for proof. They are showing their heart of unbelief in that moment. The difference here though is that God's actually asking, God's actually telling Ahaz to ask. God's actually saying to him, ask for a sign and I will do it, whether it's the depths of Sheol, which is the grave, or the heights of heaven, meaning whatever it is, whatever you want me to show you, I will show you so that you will believe. As we read already, Ahaz refuses to ask. And we think, well, that's a pretty humble response, right? Right? He's refusing to ask. That's a humble response. But one thing I want us to consider, when God comes to you and says, ask me anything, you ask him something. If he says, ask me for something, you ask him for something. You don't say, no, I'm not going to do that. God's not impressed with Ahaz's piousness. Because you see, the very act of asking for something suggests that you believe you are dependent on someone for something. It demonstrates a dependence on the one being asked. So when, when I ask for something of my wife, I'm dependent on her for that thing I've asked for. Kids are great at this, especially during Christmas. They give you the list of everything they want, right? They hand you the list, video games, toys, a football, whatever, the, whatever it is today. I don't. What, it was video games and footballs for me when I was young. Nowhere on that list do you see sweaters, socks. Sorry, Chris, you're probably not getting books on that list from kids either, although it's a good investment. But they're, they're giving you that list. They're asking for these things. Why? Because they're relying on you to get the things that they want. Now, there's very selfish ways of asking for things. That's a completely different topic, completely different sermon. But the very act of asking suggests that you are dependent on the person you're asking something of. This is one of the reasons we pray. One of the reasons we pray to God is because we are demonstrating our reliance and our need of him. So we ask of God to demonstrate the fact that we need God. And if we were to say, well, I don't need to pray, all that does is show our heart of unbelief because we don't actually we're, not, we're saying in that moment, we don't actually need God for anything, so why bother praying? That's unbelief. So Ahaz says to God, I'll not ask you anything. And he's showing that unbelief. He's showing not a humble reliance on God, but an unbelief in God. So God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You don't want to ask for one, I'm going to give you one. Verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is quoted in Matthew chapter 1. To give us some context for these verses, Joseph is sleeping. He has a dream. An angel comes to him in that dream and says, don't worry about marrying Mary. Take her as your wife. The, the baby she has inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She's been conceived of, the, this baby's conceived of the Holy Spirit. So don't be afraid. There's this special, unique pregnancy that Mary has. So verse 21 to 23, she will bear a son. He should call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Then Matthew gives us a note, which means God with us. So Matthew uses this verse written over 700 years before Jesus was even born. And he says, that verse is about Jesus. But here in Isaiah... God's giving a sign to Ahaz. So you might be thinking, why or how does a child born 700 years later help Ahaz now when he's got two countries knocking on his door, ready to kill him? To answer that, go to Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8, verses one through four. The story continues, and I'm not gonna read these, but the story continues Where Isaiah goes to his wife, he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant, and they have a son. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Anyone who did not name their kid that, you missed an opportunity. Just letting you know. Should you have an opportunity in the future, there's a good name. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. This is the sign for Ahaz. A child born to Isaiah's wife is the sign that Ahaz refused to ask for. You're going to say chapter 7 talks about Emmanuel. This is this long name that, again, I can't pronounce. Let's look at a a parallel between these things. Speaking of Emmanuel in 7.16, Before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kinds you dread will be deserted. We read that already. Chapter 8, verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Same idea in both. Chapter seven, chapter eight, before the child is more than a toddler, before he's even able to speak, these nations will be dealt with. They will no longer be a threat. They're ash, they're dust, they're nothing. So Ahaz trusts in God that those nations will be taken care of and they won't be a threat to you anymore. And again, you might be circling through this and saying, well, Mihir Shalal Hashbaz is not Emmanuel. Isaiah's wife wasn't a virgin. Clearly says in Isaiah 8. So how do we understand this? How do we think through what this is all about? And I think to understand, we have to understand, and this is dissecting a little bit of how to interpret or read the Bible, we have to understand what Hebrew, what Old Testament prophecy was doing. We tend to think of prophecy as someone giving you, you know, detailed information, time, place, event, this is going to happen exactly in this order, and so that's what a prophecy is. If somebody were to say to me, Pete, you're going to get a phone call in two weeks exactly, and someone's going to offer you $50,000 that you weren't aware that you had. They're just going to say, you won $50,000. Take it. Side note, if someone calls you and says you won $50,000 that you're not aware of, hang up the phone. Um, It's a scam. There's no Prince Nigeria who wants to give you the money. Um, Any of that stuff. Don't fall for it. It's a scam. But We tend to think of prophecies like that. Very detailed, very distinct, very specific things. But prophecy, especially in Old Testament, doesn't operate that way. Um, There's usually within Old Testament prophecy a short-term fulfillment and then a long-term fulfillment. One of the best analogies that I've heard, and it's from multiple sources, so I don't even know who to cite at this point, is the idea of a mountain range. How many of you have ever driven out to the Rocky Mountains? like one two three got a handful of people so when you when you're driving out to the Rocky Mountains let's say you're heading to Colorado when you're a far distance away the mountains just kind of look all real close to each other don't they you just see kind of the peaks everything looks real close there's not much distance between the mountain peaks as you go out there but then as you get closer and you're driving into Colorado you get into the mountains you realize oh wait that range of mountains I saw in the distance is actually individual mountains that are miles and miles apart from each other. Miles apart. And in between those mountain peaks, there's valleys with big cities and towns and all these things. And these mountain peaks could be 30, 40, 50 miles apart. But when you're far away, they they seem like they're all just stacked up on each other. That concept or that idea is very similar to Old Testament prophecy. Prophecy in the Old Testament has multiple layers to it, just like this does, so that God, when he speaks of prophecy, they happen in kind of multiple fulfillments, if you will. There's a series of events, and it could be separated by years, it could be separated by decades, or in the case of Isaiah, separated by centuries, because the first fulfillment of the sign that God gives to Ahaz is a child born to Isaiah and his wife. Not of a virgin. Child's technically not Emmanuel, but he is a sign that points to a future fulfillment, a second fulfillment that would happen. A sign that God is going to be with his people. Just like Isaiah's son was a sign that he would be with Ahaz and the people of Judah, there's a future fulfillment of a son who will be born that will be with his people. And ultimately, that leads us to our second question. Did the virgin birth really happen? We've already read Matthew, but Matthew certainly believed it happened. What's remarkable about the writings of scripture is when somebody wants to prove something in, in scripture, we just went through Romans, Paul spent so much time proving things. He gives evidence for stuff. He, he lays out a logical argument for why something is the way that it is. When it comes to the virgin birth in Matthew, he just states it. He doesn't prove it. He doesn't even try to prove it. He doesn't give you, here's the 10 reasons to believe in the virgin birth. He doesn't do that. He just quotes the verse, states it, no controversy, no proving it. It's just there. It's just a reality. And in the early church... centuries after the book of Matthew was written, after the time of Jesus, there was no debate about the truth of it. It wasn't even a question. The virgin birth just was. And you'll hear skeptics, they seek to deny the virgin birth. And what they'll do is they'll go to Isaiah 7 and they'll say, well, the word actually used in Isaiah 14 doesn't technically always mean virgin. It could mean young woman. It's the Hebrew word Alma. It could mean virgin. It could mean young woman. So can we really trust that Isaiah is saying virgin here? I'm not going to go to all of these, but the word Alma is used nine times in the Old Testament. One of them is Isaiah 7:14. Here are the other eight. I would encourage you, if you have time, look them up. The first two on this list are used in some type of musical context to describe a woman performing some type of musical performance. And it's not really clear how to interpret the word. People struggle with how do we even understand what this word means, let alone, is it virgin or is it young woman? They don't even understand what the word's being used for in the context. The next four times, the context is likely speaking of an unmarried virgin woman, likely, but it's still not 100% clear. It could be young woman, could be virgin. The bottom two speak of two women, Rebecca and Miriam, Exodus 24, or sorry, Genesis 24, Exodus 2. Clearly a reference to a young, unmarried virgin woman. Clearly a reference. And what I want to do by citing this is to highlight not only the difficulty in understanding all of this stuff, but also to say words have ranges of meaning. If I was to say the word bark, what comes to your mind? Some of you with a dog, are probably thinking of a dog barking. Some of you are thinking of a tree. Some of you who may have had some type of military background, you might be thinking about a commanding officer barking orders at you. Somebody yelling at you. Same word. What changes the meaning of that word? The context of it. Wherever the context of the word Alma in the Old Testament is clear, it always means, without a shadow of a doubt, virgin. Always means it. Where the context is clear, it always means virgin. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, translated around 300 B.C. So Isaiah written 700 B.C. The Septuagint translated 300 B.C., 300 years before Jesus. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Actually, it would have been the Bible for the early church. It would have been the Bible for the New Testament authors they actually quote from the Septuagint more than they quote from the Hebrew itself. When they translate Isaiah 7:14 from Hebrew into Greek in the Septuagint, they use the word Parthenos. The word Parthenos is always a virgin. There's no other translation for it. There's no other option for it. It is always the word virgin. So the argument that the word could mean young woman, it could mean that Mary wasn't actually a virgin, it really doesn't hold up to textual scrutiny when we look at the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't hold up to textual scrutiny when we look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. You might also hear some skeptics say, well, they just stole the virgin birth idea from other like pagan cults. There were pagan cults around. They all have virgin birth theories. I mean, even Star Wars has one for all your Star Wars fans. Star Wars has a virgin birth in there too. So Obviously, Christianity is not unique. It just borrowed from these other belief systems. I'll say a number of things that are a problem with this skeptical perspective. First, the idea of a, of a godman born to a virgin saving his people, it didn't exist before the rise of Christianity. You can't find one single solitary source before the time of Jesus that speaks of that speaks of a similar story to Jesus. It doesn't happen. All of them are post-Jesus. Second, All the pagan stories of this supposed virgin birth are all after the events of Jesus' life. Meaning that every one of those cults, every one of those pagan sects, they adopted the story of Jesus and brought it into their own religion. They, They stole the story of Jesus and they mimicked it, his conception and his birth, in order to make their sect, make their cult feel a bit more reasonable. Third, this speaks to the culture in in Jewish culture, really. But the question would be, why would a bunch of Jewish men start a church, steal a bunch of ideas from pagan cults, and then try to convert a bunch of Jews with it? That doesn't make any sense. Jewish, Jewish people wouldn't have done that. They would have sought to make the gospel as easy to believe as possible if it was fake. They would have wanted to gain a ton of different converts. And so their goal, if it was all fake, would just be make this as easy to believe as possible. So why would they put in something as supernatural, miraculous, and have to explain away as a virgin birth? They wouldn't have done it unless it was true. It's the only explanation. Now, maybe you are somewhat skeptical. You're like, well, this whole thing just sounds weird. Virgin birth can't happen. If that's you, the question I would ask you is where you think this whole thing doesn't make sense, what are some other things in this world that you take for granted? What are some other things in this world that you would say, it doesn't really make sense, but I just kind of go along with it. I believe it anyway, even though it doesn't make sense. When you have an opportunity, Google disappearing lakes. You'll find a list of lakes that have just disappeared from the face of the earth. No longer there. Sometimes scientists have an explanation. There's a sinkhole, all the water just runs into the earth, the lake's gone. Other times, scientists have no clue. The smartest people in the world have no idea how a lake that was once massive, it was, there's one lake that was actually the fourth largest lake in all of Asia, just gone. Gone. Why? They have no no idea. There are other things that we take for granted. How does your phone work? How does the internet work? Maybe a better one. How does how does medicine work? We have a pharmacist here who might know a little bit about that. I don't know how it works. The doctor, the pharmacist says, "Take this, you'll feel better." I pop a pill, I feel better. But I don't know how it works. For most of human history, taking pills to get better would have been like a fairy tale. It would have been this, like, voodoo weird stuff. Just this make-believe stuff, you pop a pill, your head feels better. For centuries and centuries before, really, the last hundred years, that wasn't a thing. But now, we accept it. Why? Because we trust the doctor, we trust the pharmacist, we trust the person who's giving us the pills. And you know that if you talk to the right person and you ask the right questions, they'll be able to hopefully explain it to you. I'll say this. Could it not be the same with the miracles of the Bible? Could it not be the same specifically with the virgin birth? That before we just shrug our shoulders and say, nah, stuff like that can't happen. Could it be that there's someone with infinite intelligence, infinite knowledge, who understands how everything works, and one day we can meet him face-to-face, we can ask all the questions we want, and he will give us all the information we want. Someone smarter than doctors, smarter than scientists, he made the universe, he knows all the answers to all the questions we don't even know to ask. Could it be that there's someone there that knows how all this stuff works, and we just simply need to trust him? That what the Bible says about the virgin birth is actually true. That there's this mysterious, miraculous pregnancy where a child is in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though Mary never slept with a man, and this girl gives birth. Can I just present before you, that's, that's a possibility. Just like you trust in the medicine that you take, just like you trust in the phone that you use, even though you don't have all the answers, we can trust that the story and the miracles of the Bible are true because there is a God behind all of those miracles who has all the answers. Takes us to our third question. Why does it matter? You might say this is interesting stuff, Isaiah's son, disappearing lakes, but does it really matter? There was a, over a decade ago, there was a pretty popular author. He said, look... What if we, through DNA testing, found out that Jesus actually had a dad named Larry? Would that change anything? Should that change anything? Would it really matter? Can't we just say and believe all the same stuff about Jesus, even if he had some earthly father named Larry? And he went on to say, if Jesus being virgin born matters to you so much, maybe your faith is too weak. And what I would say to that individual, again, pretty popular, Arthur, is you are completely wrong. Because our faith is based in history, not in myth. The gospel isn't meant to just inspire us to a better way of living. The virgin birth matters because it happened. Because it's a reality. And as a reality and the fact that it happened This amazing story of redemption is revealed and accomplished. I said from the outset, if you lose the virgin birth, you've lost the gospel. And that is true. Because if you lose the virgin birth, something that is foundational and fundamental to our faith, without the virgin birth, you don't have the cross. Without the cross, you don't have forgiveness of sin. Without forgiveness of sin, what are we left in? Condemnation. Wrath. We stand before a holy and a just God who has no choice in that moment to to punish us. If all he sees on us is condemnation and wrath, all he will do is punish us for the rebellion that we have had against him. So if we lose the virgin birth, we lose salvation. We don't have heaven. We don't have God without the virgin birth. You know, we're not a church who studies catechisms together. And I don't think I put this up here. I didn't. So we'll just settle on that verse. We don't study catechisms a lot. I know some of you may have done this with your your kids in the past, but there's a catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. It asks this question about the virgin birth. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Here's the answer the catechism gives. That the eternal son of God who is and remains true and eternal God took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh And blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might become David's true descendant, like his brother in every way except for sin. I want us to notice the first line: who is and remains true and eternal God. In becoming one of us, Jesus did not cease to be who he was. He's not a transformer, he's not a shapeshifter. I've been on a streak of Harry Potter examples in sermons recently, so here's another one. In Harry Potter, there are characters who are able to change from themselves to animals. One moment it's a man, one moment it's a woman, next thing you know it's a dog, it's a cat, it's a rat, depending on the person that it is. That is not Jesus. He didn't take off being God to become man And it's in the virgin birth that we can wed Jesus' divine nature, 100% God, with Jesus' human nature, 100% man, and bring them together. And without the virgin birth, that doesn't happen. Because you see, a man sits as king over all the world. A man, the God-man, sits on the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things. And it's because of the miracle of the virgin birth. So yes, it does matter that Jesus didn't have an earthly father named Larry. It absolutely matters. Because Jesus, the son of God, born to Mary, comes to us as a man in the flesh and the image of Adam. But he does not come to us through the line of Adam. Because Adam's fallen race needs someone to redeem it all of us in need of redemption because we are sinful by nature at birth. And so we need a savior, someone who comes into our world like us, but not depraved like us. The only way for Jesus to come and be of the same nature as Adam, but not come from Adam is through the virgin birth. And that's really what Christmas is all about. The story of two Adams, one who fell and sinned, One who comes in from the outside, Jesus, into our world. Someone from somewhere else taking on flesh, like Adam, but not in the line of Adam. That same catechism asks the question, how does the holy conception, the birth of Christ, benefit you? Here's the answer it gives. He is our mediator. And in his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, mine, which was conceived, or since I was conceived. This is why the virgin birth matters, because Jesus did not inherit the curse of depravity. We inherited the curse of depravity. Jesus was not a descendant of Adam, and so in some mysterious way, he did not inherit sin, but we are born in our sin, all of us. Not just God present, and, and what, this, what this does is it, it brings to us God with us. Emmanuel. And not just God with us in the sense that he is everywhere, but God with us in the sense that he is for us. So I think sometimes when we think and reflect on the virgin birth in this topic, we have to look back to say, do we believe this? If we look it through completely natural eyes, it seems like a wild story. A girl by best accounts of what we know, for that culture in that time, 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. Probably never kissed a man, may not have even spoken to a man outside of her own family. An angel comes to her and tells her that she is pregnant with a child. That's not normal. But it's supernatural. It's miraculous. And in a mysterious way, God came into this world, retaining his nature as divine, taking on human nature, but not corrupted by sin. And because of that, we have a sinless child born into the world who grows, lives a sinless life, and dies on the cross in our place, taking the punishment we deserved for our sin. Chris cited the verse last week, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why it matters that Jesus didn't have a dad named Larry. That's why it matters that this isn't just some make-believe story that we tell once a year that we can put up as a nativity display in our home. Do you believe that this actually happened? If it really did happen, can we trust the God who can do that? You know, we're not in the same situation as Isaiah, but it's not all that different. Isaiah's day, there was Israel and Syria and Assyria. In our day, it's someone else. It's something else. There's something else that we are tempted to trust in, that we are, we are drawn to, to rely on and depend on instead of God. Same temptation to trust someone else. It's the same doubt that Ahaz had that God can actually help us. It's the same fight for our faith. And God says, I'll give you a sign that I'm with you and I'm for you and I'm not against you. And I'll give you a son. And it's not Isaiah's son from Isaiah chapter eight. He was a nice present for Ahaz, but there's a better gift that comes and his name is Jesus. Son of God, born of a virgin. The sign that God is with us and for us for all eternity. So God's word to us from a prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen, fulfilled in Jesus Christ is that in every doubt of God, in every temptation to trust something else, stand firm in your faith. Why? Because the promised son of God is born, Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus. Scripture says, Matthew 1, he will save his people from their sins. That's the promise that we have because of the virgin birth. If we don't have the virgin birth, we don't have that promise. And we are, of all people, most miserable. We celebrate communion each week at Eternal City. It serves us as a reminder that Jesus did indeed save us from our sin, that he gave his life so that we would have life. Jesus tells his disciples to remember his death until he returns. So I would encourage you, if you have trusted and believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that you would take communion with us. Um, There'll be some individuals walking around with passing out juice and crackers and we're going to, to sing a song momentarily and we will come back and remember Christ together as we take communion as one church.